Well, that is uh, a great answer that will kind of guide us into the message then for this morning, which is titled, How Then Shall We Pray? We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. So please turn there in your Bibles and again have this sheet handy here. And actually, I want to look together. Uh, we'll not do a, a question and answer, call and response here, but I will read uh, questions 160 or 186 and 187. What rule has God given for our direction in the duty of prayer? The answer is the whole word of God is of use to direct us in the duty of prayer, but the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which our Savior Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is then addressed here in the rest of the larger catechism, the next 10 questions from 187 through 196. That's a very systematic unpacking of the prayer. Question 187, how is the Lord's Prayer to be used? It says the Lord's Prayer is not only for direction as a pattern according to which we are to make other prayers, it may also be used as a prayer if it is done with understanding, faith, reverence, and the other graces necessary to the right performance of the duty of prayer. So it means these are not just some words that we just repeat. We just say them from memory and just mumble through them over and over and over. We are to pray this prayer with understanding. And that is the goal this morning to help us understand how to do that. Well, Pastor Kent Hughes, in his Preaching the Word commentary series, begins the first of three sermons on this passage by explaining the historical significance of the Lord's Prayer, which he quite correctly calls the greatest prayer of the church. He lists many who have written and meditated on the significance of this prayer from Origen to Martin Luther, and even points out the amount of space that it takes up in the Westminster Catechisms. He concludes his opening paragraph with these words. Millions of hours of intense study have been devoted to these verses by centuries of successive genius. And I've got 35 to 40 minutes to try to scratch the surface of this. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, writes... The substance of the Lord's Prayer is a mine of spiritual treasure. To expound it fully in a work like this is manifestly impossible. This is one of two volumes. He wrote 700 pages on Luke. And he says to expound the Lord's Prayer in a work of 700 pages is manifestly impossible. He goes on, the prayer on which volumes have been written does not admit of being handled properly in a few pages. For the present, it must suffice us to notice its leading divisions and to mark the leading trains of thought which it should suggest to us for private meditation. That's what I'm seeking to do this morning, right? Just to give us a little bite-sized chunk. This is like the kid who went out yesterday and got some Halloween candy and came home with a little bite-sized Snickers bar, right? And he wanted the king-size bar. All I can give you today is the bite-sized Snickers. I'm sorry, but you can go home and you can get the king-size portion. You can meditate on this and you can dig in. And this is something that I emphasize over and over. 
Our discipleship as Christians is a long process. My theme verse, my personal theme verse for this year is 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. Peter writes, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. And he's talking in verse 16 about those who twist the scriptures and then lose your own stability. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ is a lifelong process. This this here, coming here on Sunday mornings to hear God's word preached, this cannot be our only diet of God's word. My job is to inform you and to challenge you and to encourage you and to send you out hungry for more so that you will go back and feed yourself on God's word. Don't just come here relying to hear something from me and I I promise you you're going to be disappointed if that's all you're relying on. So let this little bite-sized taste here today of the Lord's Prayer this morning leave you with a longing and a hunger for more. I encourage you to go home and and read through this and pray through this. Read through the whole entire two pages of the the Westminster Larger Catechism as it explains more in depth what each section of the Lord's Prayer is about. And you can go and compare it with the parallel passages in Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7. I'm not going to do a deep dive into the similarities and differences between Matthew's version and Luke's version. That's stuff for commentaries that can get really, really long and and exhaustive. I'm also not going to look, we're not going to look only at the contents of the prayer itself. I think this whole section here actually teaches us more about prayer in general than just the contents of the Lord's Prayer. So we this morning are going to try to attempt to answer the question, how then shall we pray? Prayer for us as Christians is our lifeline And it's hard, right? Prayer is not an easy thing. We need God's help. So let's read this passage and let's ask him for that help that we need. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and our hearts, to receive your word, to hear from you this morning, to learn how to pray, to see from this scripture that this is not just some wooden rote prayer that we just mumble under our breath over and over and over but this is our lifeline. These are the words, these are the truths that we need daily to remind ourselves of of who we are, to come before you, to come into your presence and seek your face. So Lord, open up our hearts, open up our minds to receive from you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin to think about this question, how then shall we pray, by looking again at the first bullet point of larger catechism, number 185, if you look at that with me. The second part of the answer, and the first part is we are to pray with an odd appreciation of the majesty of God. The second part points us to our need for prayer. And it is a reminder of our fallen condition. We are to pray with a deep sense of our own unworthiness, needs, and sins. In the Institutes, Calvin gives several rules for prayer. And his second rule is that prayer is characterized by self-abasement. He writes, We must lay aside any thought of our own glory be done with any belief in self-worth, and ceasing to have any confidence in ourselves, let us in humility and abasement give glory to God. Let us not claim the slightest credit for ourselves, lest in our absurd arrogance we be struck down before him. This leads us to the first of the four ways that we should pray. First, if you're taking notes, four ways. We'll talk about them as we go. First, we should pray humbly. We should pray humbly. We see this very clearly in verse 1. Jesus was praying, and one of his disciples observed him praying. I think there was probably an awed appreciation of the majesty of God, as it says there in large, larger catechism 185. Not because Jesus used fancy words, or because his face glowed when he prayed, but because the disciples observed his intimacy with the Father, and they wanted to be able to pray in a similar manner. Consider what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, 
And he was heard because of his reverence. Heard because of his reverence. That means awe and fear of the Lord. The disciples saw that when Jesus prayed. They saw his reverence for the Father. And they wanted that. They wanted to be able to pray like that. Humility and reverence are very hard things to fake. Now clearly Jesus was not faking them because he was perfect. But my point is that when you observe someone, especially when you hear some pre- someone pray, and you can genuinely hear their humility, you can genuinely hear their reverence for God, it's inspiring, isn't it? It gives us pause and it says, man, I wish I could approach the Father like that. Again, it's not just fancy words, but it's, and it's, maybe it's someone you know well, right? You know their life, you know their humility, you know their reverence for the Lord. It's not someone who doesn't live that life and then acts like it when they pray, right? It's someone whose life matches their words when they approach God in prayer. Something, something attractive about that. There's something inspiring about that. It makes you yourself want to grow in your prayer life, to grow in your intimacy with the Lord. Whether it's someone you actually know, or maybe it's prayers that you read in the scriptures. There are so many great prayers in the scriptures, and almost all of them are prayed by fellow sinners like us, right? We spent the whole summer in the Psalms. Those are all prayers to God from fellow sinners. So go there. Learn from those prayers from fellow sinners. And then go to the perfect one, Jesus I love the prayer in John chapter 17. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. Go and read that and camp out there for a while and grow in humility in prayer as you see Jesus' relationship with the Father and how he communicates with the Father and how he prays for us in that high priestly prayer. So first, we should pray humbly. Next, we should pray biblically which piggybacks off of what I just said about so many great prayers in the scriptures. As Larger Catechism 186 says, the whole word of God is of use to direct us in the duty of prayer. The whole word of God, but especially the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is a great model prayer. It teaches us how to pray biblically, not just because it's in the Bible, but it gives us some major doctrines to help to guide us as we pray. This is a a biblical prayer. This is a prayer that is filled with truths from Scripture all over it, all through it. It begins with a preface, and you see that in Larger Catechism uh, 188 and 189, talking about the different parts. Uh, There's a preface, and then there are requests, and there is a conclusion. So it begins with a preface, followed by, in Luke's version, followed by five requests. So larger catechism 190 through 195 uh, are the requests. In Matthew's version, there are six requests instead of five. Some minor differences there, uh, just in how things are put together. Uh, Clearly, Jesus did not only teach on how to pray one time. Uh, That's why we have a a different version recorded in Luke and in Matthew. And again, you can go dig into all those differences if you're interested. But it begins here with a preface. And in Luke's version, it's one word, 
Father. It's an acknowledgement of our relationship with God, that we can come to him with our requests because of our standing before him as his sons and daughters. We're going to see this further reflected in the parable in verses 5 through 7, and then the explanation of that parable in verse 8 and following. This dynamic here, this father-child relationship, again, I think this is what makes Jesus' prayer in John 17 so powerful. He's reflecting on his own relationship with his heavenly Father, and we see that intimacy. And again, we must seek that type of intimacy with God as he is our Father. So that's the preface. We come to God as our Father. Then there are requests. The first request is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a weird word. Um, We almost never use it in verb form uh, like it's used here. It's only used two times in in the ESV. It's translated as hallowed. It's here and in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 6. The same word in verb form is also used in in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, when he says, sanctify them in the truth. So this word means to set something apart. So hallowed be your name. It's saying to God that may God's name be set apart. Um, That's how it's used in verb form. You might hear this word be used in adjective form, like hallowed ground. Uh, We might talk about the Gettysburg battlefield as, as hallowed ground, or Lambeau Field, right, as hallowed ground. But here it's a verb, again, meaning to sanctify or to make something holy or to treat something as holy. The Christian Standard Bible says, your name be honored as holy. So it's an idea of of reverence, which I mentioned earlier. It recognizes who God is as holy and set apart. Well, what are we asking to be holy or set apart? Hallowed be your name. May your name be honored as holy. And name here, we've talked about this before, name refers to God's character. It's the sum of who he is. So when we talk about the honoring of God's name, this is a serious matter. This isn't just a word. It's not just saying a word. It's honoring him for who he is. And I think when we look at the the Ten Commandments, and about not taking God's name in vain, clearly we shouldn't use God's name as a cuss word, but it's not just talking about that. It's talking about the entirety of honoring God for who he is and honoring his name and his, the, the full character of everything that describes him. Something that I think really helps to point this out that I, I saw in my studies and just have to bring this out. There is an incredible passage in Ezekiel chapter 36 that many of us, I think, are probably familiar with. And it has some beautiful gospel parallels, especially to verse 13 in this passage, which we're going to see a little bit later about the Father giving the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, it's where God makes a promise to the house of Israel that he will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them that he will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. This is an amazing promise of renewal for the people of Israel. But do you know what prompted that promise? Do you know what comes right before that? It wasn't Israel's obedience to God. That promise was made in verse 26, Ezekiel 36, 26, the promise of a new heart. But that section begins 
right before that, with the Lord telling Ezekiel to say these words to the people of Israel in verses 22 and 23. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Despite all your sin, Israel, despite all your disobedience, despite all of your taking my name in vain, the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is incredible, guys. God says, despite the way you have profaned my name, I'm still going to use you for my glory. And I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to clean you off. I'm going to make you new. That's incredible. God is jealous for his own name, and we must recognize that as we approach him in prayer. We must acknowledge that his holy name deserves to be honored and not profaned. And though we, like the children of Israel, do not always honor his name as we ought, and we need to confess that, he, by his grace, still calls us his own. He still welcomes us. He still cleans us off and doesn't punish us by swapping out our hearts of flesh back out for hearts of stone. He is a good and gracious father. The second request, your kingdom come. In Matthew's gospel, the words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, follow your kingdom come, which makes it clear that this is not just an end times hope of the kingdom of God being fully present at Jesus' return. But there is an already or a present acknowledgement that the Lord reigns and that his kingdom is advancing and his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. As Christians, we always need this part of the Lord's prayer. But as American Christians right now, how much more do we need this reminder? I've been saying it for the past few weeks, and we're right on the doorstep of the election, and the fervor and the angst are not getting any less intense. Is the cry of our hearts to our good and gracious Father, your kingdom come, and not please bless the kingdom of America? Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be patriotic. It's okay to love your country. It's okay to thank God for your country. I'm not saying it's wrong to care about the future of this nation. We should. Of all people, we should. But we must get our priorities right in this area. The kingdom of God is forever. And it spans the globe and it spans generations. Before there was even a word, America, the kingdom of God was advancing. 
It is the citizenship that the Old Testament saints listed in Hebrews 11 held tightly to as they desired a better country. Brothers and sisters, let us pray always, but especially during this time in our nation. Father, your kingdom come. And let us long for our heavenly home as we seek to live out this dual citizenship in a way that honors him. We just sang it, right, in grace alone. In verse 2, verse 3, called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken, heaven's citizens by grace and grace alone. We are dual citizens, and we have to remember that. But our primary citizenship is clearly in heaven. The third request shifts from focusing on God's glory and his kingdom to focusing on our needs. And notice I said, our. Notice the personal pronouns here. They are first person plural, not first person singular. It is not wrong for us to pray for our own individual needs. But Jesus here is teaching his disciples how to pray together as a community. How to intercede and how to make requests of God that concern the whole church. So yes, we can pray these following things for ourselves, but we are to pray them for us. We are to pray communally for these needs. And here are the three requests. We will look at them. Three Ps. Provision, pardon, and protection. Provision, pardon, and protection. First, provision. Quite straightforward. We are to ask for daily bread. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. Most scholars believe that this is literally asking for the physical daily provision of food and for the spiritual bread that we need to survive as well. In John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed 5,000 people, he had a conversation with the crowds about how God had provided manna from heaven while the people of Israel were in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. He told them that it wasn't Moses who provided the bread from heaven. So he's speaking in the past, but then he switches to speaking in the present tense, and he says, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And, he, and then listen to what he says next. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do you remember what the crowd said in response? Sir, give us this bread always. That sounds a lot like give us each day our daily bread, doesn't it? And Jesus declared... I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Your will be done, right? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The provision that we need is not just for full bellies, but for full and satisfied souls. Souls that are assured that if we feast on Jesus, the bread of life, that we will live forever and we will be raised up on the last day because we have been made new and we have had our sins forgiven. That's the fourth request for pardon. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now this is, we can read this incorrectly. This does not mean that our grounds for forgiveness is the fact that we forgive others. We're not going to God and saying, well, God, I forgave this person, therefore you need to forgive me. But this is the fruit of us having been forgiven by God. This is saying, God, because you have forgiven us and you continue to forgive us, we will continue to forgive those who sin against us, right? And this, this is all over the Gospels, right? Jesus is talking about our relationship with other people and how we need to forgive others. If we don't forgive them, God won't forgive us. So we continue to ask God for forgiveness, and we continue to remind ourselves of our need to forgive others because of the forgiveness that we have received from God. And that is the communal element here. We live out this continual cycle of faith and repentance in community with one another. Well, just as our need for provision of both physical and spiritual bread are daily things, so is the need for forgiveness. Both Godward, right, in our vertical relationship with the Lord, and others' word in our horizontal relationship with other people. And we have to remember that before the cross, this would still have registered in the disciples' minds as a part of the sacrificial system. That to have forgiveness with God, an animal had to die and blood had to be shed. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, 22. A few verses later in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So our forgiveness is secure because Jesus has borne our sins on the cross, and he is coming again for those who are eagerly waiting for him. But that eager waiting for us means remaining in a sin filled world. This world that is full of trials and temptations. And so we pray the final request, the request for protection. Lead us not into temptation. I think this truth is captured well in the third verse of Martin Luther's great Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth 
to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word is Jesus. There is no guarantee, brothers and sisters, that we will be free of trials and temptations on this side of heaven. Go read the catechism question on this section. I love it. There is no guarantee, but we know that Jesus has ultimately won the victory over sin and Satan and death. And no matter what comes our way in this life, we know that our security in the coming kingdom is certain because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross on our behalf. All of those things should give us great confidence to pray this prayer, to come before our Father, to declare who he is, to ask for his kingdom to come, and to ask for all these requests for provision, for protection. All of these things should help us to believe and to cling to God and his promises, to seek to live in a more kingdom-minded way. So that's the prayer in a nutshell. Again, there's a ton there, so go and, and dive in and study and read and pray. But now we come to the parable that Jesus attaches to the prayer and to the application of it. It goes like this. A man gets a surprise visitor at midnight. He has no bread to give him. So he goes to a friend and he asks for three loaves, but the friend is in bed with his kids and he doesn't want to get up. It's probably, he's probably in one single room. They're probably all sleeping on one mat together. And the question is, will he not get up and give him bread because he is his friend? And the answer is no. Not because he is his friend, but because of his impudence. Another strange word, one that we don't use very often, like hallowed. It means shamelessness or persistence. Some translations say shameless boldness. Because of the friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him what he asked for. And the point of the parable is that we are to pray persistently. That's the third way that we are to pray. We are to pray persistently. That's seen in the explanation in verses 9 and 10 in this increasing progression. The intensity increases from asking to seeking to knocking. It's like if I was uh, visited at midnight by a friend and... I have no food in the cupboards, right? Because whatever reason, my kids ate all the food. Uh, and I send James a text and I'm like, hey man, I need you to hook me up here. And James doesn't text me back. And I'm like really desperate. So I'm gonna go over to James's house and I'm gonna see if the vehicles are in the driveway, right? I don't care if all the lights are out. If both vehicles are there, I know somebody's home, right? And I'm gonna start pounding on the door. And I do know where your spare key is, by the way, too. So I may just, uh, you know, I may just barge right up and, and, yeah, I'll wake you up, buddy. But that's what's going on here. It's this increasing intensity from simply asking, right, to then seeking. It's the asking with some action added to the knocking, which is like, all right, 
I need this thing. That is how we are to approach God in prayer. Not because God is like the cranky friend in bed at midnight who we need to bother until he finally gives us what we want. That's actually not the point of this parable. This is actually a contrast between God and the friend, not a comparison. And that's brought out more fully in the last three verses. The promises attached to asking, seeking, and knocking are receiving, finding, and having the door open to us. Those are promises that we can bank on because we have a good and gracious and generous Father in heaven. He's not stingy. He's not going to be cranky when we bother him. We can't bother him, right? He's always willing to hear us, always willing to listen to our prayers. And Jesus unpacks it even further in verses 11 to 13. Earthly fathers, even though they are evil, they don't give serpents instead of fish or scorpions instead of eggs to their children who ask. No. Earthly fathers give good gifts to their children. And don't miss these words in the middle of verse 13. Jesus says, how much more? That's where the contrast comes in. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And the focus on this last section is that we are to pray expectantly. We are to pray humbly. We are to pray biblically. We are to pray persistently. And we are to pray expectantly. I want to close with another quote from J.C. Ryle on this section as we prepare to transition into the Lord's Supper. He says, The Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things, life, light, hope, and heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love, God the Son's atoning blood, and full communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Having this gift, we have grace and peace in the world that now is, glory and honor in the world to come. And yet this mighty gift is held out by our Lord Jesus Christ as a gift to be obtained by prayer. All you need to do is ask right? You have a father who is gracious and who is good and who will give you his Holy Spirit. Now again, clearly when we become Christians, we get the Holy Spirit, right? This isn't like we get it and then we lose it and we have to keep asking for it. But this is, I believe, in asking for a continual abiding, a continual presence of God in our lives, a continual seeking of God and the things that he has for us when we ask him for his spirit. And again, what a great picture as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. We talk about the means of grace, right? The word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. These are the ways that God comes, that God nourishes our soul through his word, through these prayers, through the sacrament. We commune with the triune God, as as Ryle talked about there. As we come to this table, we seek 
God's presence, right? We seek the filling of his Holy Spirit. We seek communion with the risen Christ. This table is open to all of those who have trusted in Christ. All of those who are Christians who have the Holy Spirit of God, who can come to this table, just like the Lord's Prayer, right? This isn't just some thing we just go through the motions, right? We, we repeat some prayer, we repeat some words over and over so we think that we're right with God. We just come in and we take this little wafer and we drink this juice or this wine and we think, oh, we're right with God. No, this is an overflow of our relationship with the Lord, right? This is a reality of what God has done for us in Christ. We come and we remember. This is a picture of the kingdom that is coming. It's a reality of that already and not yet. That we already have forgiveness. We already have all things that we need. But there is so much more yet to come, right? We look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray and we wait and we beg God, God, your kingdom come. How long, right? How long, O oh Lord? What a great reminder as we come to the table this morning.